This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'd like to welcome you to the third and final legislative session preview from the Connecticut Mirror. I'm John Dankosky, and for our finale in this series, it's Keith Faneff's Big Budget Review, because the budget's already out there, but we're still going to preview this legislative session with Connecticut Mirror State Budget Reporter Keith Faneff. We're going to talk about what's ahead, and we're going to Try to take some of your questions as well. Now, our previous two events in this series, a roundtable with economic development reporter Erica Phillips, housing and children's issues reporter Ginny Monk, and justice reporter Jaden Edison, and also our preview of the politics of the session with Mark Pazniokas, are available at ctmirror.org slash events. That's where you can find out about future events like this as well. Now, tonight's event made possible through the support of CBIA. You can learn more about CBIA's 2023 Transform Connecticut Policy Solutions at CBIA.com. We thank them as always for their support. Keith, it's good to see you once again. Happy budget season and happy new year. It seems like we've done this for a long time. How many budgets has it, has it been for you that you've covered at the state capitol? Oh, uh, boy. Um, let's see. I started in 93, but then I had a break and I came back in 99. You're making me do math. I know um, it's, it's not your strong suit, right? For a budget reporter. <laughs> Let's see. I'm I'm guessing this is oh wow, you know, this might be no, I was gonna say might be my 25th, but I think it's the 26th. Wow, that, that's an awful lot of budgets. Or and 25. It's one of the two. It's 25 or 26. So you've seen a lot of them. Anything, I mean, before we get to the specifics here, anything really surprising to you this year? Anything that, that stood out as saying, you know, I've covered 25 or 26 of these, but this feels a little different. Um, there were a few small things that were different. I mean, this is the first time uh, the legislature added a requirement that a governor has to state how his or her budget addresses inequities along racial and ethnic lines? What is it doing to close the gap in economic opportunity and education, healthcare? Um, that made it kind of interesting. Of course, whenever you're sitting on huge surpluses like we are right now, but as you know from our talks, John, there's still tons of long-term debt. So I always find that context fascinating. Um, are you gonna see the glasses half full, half empty, um, somewhere in the middle? Um, and, and then there's the, the question where we just don't cut taxes that often. I mean, they, they, we tend to, it's the nature of government. They tend to increase them more than they cut them. And there's always a fight if you're going to cut taxes on who benefits. And that's kind of always interesting to watch. I, I, let's just quickly get back to this, this provision that the legislature put in that, that really required Governor Lamont to do something a little bit different. I, is that a... Is that a substantive change in any way that a governor has to sort of say, here's how my budget's going to deal with some of the intractable problems of inequality in the state? Because, look, as long as we've been talking about the budget, Keith, we've also been talking about the two Connecticut's, uh, a, a state that's divided, a state that really has some of the biggest uh, gaps in equality in sure. the entire nation. So is this a substantive change, do you think? I, I think it is. I think it's the cumulative effect, and I should have also mentioned it, it has to address what we're doing along gender lines. I mean, when you think of everything that's been going on, the growing awareness that the pandemic has added, um, the tragedy involving George Floyd, the, the, the Me Too movement, uh, just the, the, 
the increasing awareness with, with so much more to go, but the increasing awareness about inequality produced changes like this in recent years. We also saw last year for the first time in like eight years, Connecticut was brave enough to actually do a tax fairness study. We always had these requirements on the books and we'd always say, oh, we'll, we'll look another year, we'll look another year. And when they passed this equity provision, the legislature also said, we're gonna come back in December of 23 and do a third tax fairness study. Um, so there is definitely some momentum, but uh, Connecticut is still ground zero um, in the United States, and some would even argue on planet Earth for extremes of income and wealth inequality. So it's it's a, still a long road. So uh, let's set a little bit more of the, the groundwork here, too. You've already mentioned, as we always do, the sort of long-term fiscal uh, situation for the state versus the short-term fiscal situation for the state. We have more budget surpluses. We've seen that uh, tax revenues continue to come in and it pushes uh, revenue surpluses to a level that we haven't seen in quite some time in the state. That's different than some of the long-term obligations that we have. Set the groundwork for what the fiscal and economic conditions in Connecticut are like that this budget sort of drops into. Well, the, the, the subtitle for this section, John, would be, let's see what we can do to make $12 billion seem small. Um, <laughs> we've, we've got roughly about $3 billion, $3.3 billion in the rainy day fund. And what that really is, is equal to about 15% of the general fund. So if for some reason this wouldn't happen, but if all the money vanished overnight, we'd have enough money in the rainy day fund to keep the budget going for about 15% of the year. Um, since 2020, we've made almost another $6 billion in supplemental payments into the pension funds. In other words, that's in addition to the probably close to two and a half to $3 billion we're required to put in every single year. And then the current fiscal year is on pace to finish about $3.2 billion in the black, which would be the second largest surplus ever after last year's. And that's amazing when you think, okay, we've got all this money, granted a lot of it's one time, but I should have also mentioned, there are projections for black ink, granted not as much, but still um, more than in the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars for each of the next three years. So, I mean, we still don't know, they're just forecasts. We don't know what's gonna happen with the global economy. Here's, here's the other side of that, though. We still have $88 billion in long-term debt, meaning we could, you know, we, we poured and poured and poured money into the teacher's pension over the last couple of years, and we poured and poured and poured money into the state employees' pensions. And our required contribution for the state employees' pension still went up. Even with all the extra assets that we put in, it still went up. And that speaks to the other half of your question, which is sort of the economic situation. Um, most of our surpluses until about 2022 really stemmed from a booming stock market. We did have somewhat of a correction in 2022, but the capital gains just kept pouring into the state. And as the capital gains, they didn't stop in 2022, but as they slowed down, a little bit off that torrid, torrid pace, inflation took over and drove up our sales tax receipts and drove up other receipts. So while the state has been, and the state government's coffers have been overflowing, 
I mean, households last summer were dealing with eight and nine percent inflation. Um, it's 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 another example of the extremes that you get in Connecticut. Yeah, and, and that inflation is real. And now that we've gotten out of the the political season, in which you know people were trying to on various sides were trying to say the problems of inflation are the problems of a Connecticut governor, which he clearly has very little to do with. There are some implications of that inflation that's been happening over the course of the last year, and and that actually plays a role here in the type of budget that the governor was able to put together. I, I definitely think so. I think just one example we could point to is the gas tax holiday that everybody can relate to. Um, it started in April and we waived the 25 cent retail tax through December. And then we've been adding the tax back gradually in nickel a month. By the time it's over, it's going to have given back about 330 million to motorists. Here's why I raised that example. Despite all that money we've handed back, the budget special transportation fund is going to finish 12% in the black this fiscal year. All this money is still in there despite giving it all away. And yet when legislators say, well, can we cut this? The answer is no, because we're gonna use this money to fix the roads and bridges. Here's the problem. We're not fixing the roads and bridges at any faster pace. We still have problems in state government. Maybe the DOT doesn't have enough people. So we have inflation, drives up the price of gasoline, people pay a lot more. Yes, we respond by doing a holiday, but ultimately that exposes a problem in government, which is we're not fixing roads and bridges. So if I can't give you relief there, that's one of the reasons, I'm sorry if you can follow my winding narrative, there's pressure to cut the income tax because we can't keep the gas tax holiday. Everyone says eventually we're gonna start fixing roads and bridges faster. So we're gonna start using that money soon. Well, then where else can you give it? Sort of like some, you know, picture Scrooge McDuck sitting. I'm not calling the governor Scrooge McDuck. I'm saying calling the state government, you know, sitting on a pile of cash. And can you give us a little off that pile? No, I need it. How about that corner of the pile? No. Well, the income tax is a corner of the pile. Everyone feels we can give something back. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about this gigantic tax cut that the governor has proposed. Uh, as you say, we don't get tax cuts here very often. Give us a little sense of the of the scope and the in the historic nature of what is being proposed here. Well, we have had an income tax since 1991. We have had very few cuts in the income tax rates in mid 90s. We added a 3% rate uh, to charge a portion of the income. The state income tax is sort of odd. When we think of the federal income tax, you think of you fall into one bracket. Maybe all my earnings are taxed at 32% or 30%. It doesn't work that way with the state income tax. Um, I'll just give you one example. A family that makes $150,000 a year, the first $20,000 they make is taxed at 3%. Then the next $80,000 is taxed at 5%. Then the next $50,000 is taxed at 55 And you have to get your calculator and figure it all out. Then there could be exemptions and credits which move the numbers. It's really a blended rate ultimately that you're paying. But we generally don't lower rates. We generally only increase them. Governor Lamont, for the first time since the mid-90s, is making a rate change or is proposing a rate change that would actually cut what people make. He would lower that bottom rate from 3% to 2% and would lower the second rate from 5% to 4.5%. Most, but not all of this, is aimed at middle-income households. So they would probably save, I think, at the a single 
person would top out at about $300, a couple at about $600. The governor's also, I'll just mention quickly, complementing this by expanding the income tax credit for the working poor. Now we're talking generally about families that make between forty dollars and $60,000 a year. Um, and this would increase their refunds by a little more than $200. So we're talking about $300, dollars $600, $600, some money coming back to, to in, individuals and families. Uh, when, when he's talking about middle income folks, what exactly is he talking about? What, what, is, what constitutes middle income right now in the state as far as tax rates? Well, let's start quickly with what, what probably defines the low income. Um, if you follow the United Way's ALICE methodology, which is, I'm going to do my best to remember the acronym, I believe it's um, Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. But they put together a survival budget for a family of four, two adults and two kids, because the federal poverty level is just an outdated metric. If you make $27,101, you are not in poverty, according to the federal government, yeah. for a family of four, four. Yeah, um, nice going, federal aids. government. Yes. So um, the United Way says it's closer in Connecticut to $90,000 to cover everything, including childcare, including utilities, your groceries, everything. You need about $90,000 a year. So then when you're saying, well, what really is the middle class? Um, I think most people are saying in Connecticut, you're talking, if you go with the cutoff on our property tax credit on the income tax, you're talking about 150, maybe as high as about $200,000. The challenge for Governor Lamont is, remember I said the income tax is a blended rate. Some of your earnings are taxed at one percentage, others are taxed at another. Well, let's say you're at the high end because we have actually seven different rates ranging from 3% to 6.99. Let's say you're a single person making 500,000 or a couple making a million. The first 20,000 for that couple making a million is still taxed at 3%. And then the next 80,000 is taxed at five and so on until you get up to the higher levels. The point I'm getting at is there are also some wealthy households, some well-off households that would benefit from Governor Lamont's tax cut. That is where he is likely to start getting some pushbacks from progressives in the Democratic Party. So let, let's talk a, a bit about that, that pushback. What would people in the Democratic Party who wish that Governor Lamont would give more relief to lower income individuals and also spend more money on some social services, which right. we'll be talking about in a bit, um, what is it they would propose instead? Well, again, to give the governor credit, he definitely will get support from them for the earned income tax, but um, an extra $210 a year for a family making $60,000 is not really going to increase their ability to save. That money will get spent right away on groceries or utility bills. One of the proposals out there, this came, uh, well, at the time from a state representative, he's now the state comptroller, Sean Scanlon. Um, he's been leading the charge for an income tax credit for low and middle income families with kids. Uh, the child tax credit, as he had proposed it, would be $600 per child, up to $1,800 for a family. Um, it would cut off at $200,000. So if you make more than that, you wouldn't get it at all. Also, 70% of it would be refundable, meaning let's say you were a poor family and you really didn't have, you had little or no income tax liability because what credits do is they reduce what you owe. Once you get to zero, you generally don't keep getting the benefit of the credit. The EITC is an example of one that's refundable. You still get a refund, even if you've 
you've in theory reduced your liability to zero. So if the child tax credit is refundable, a poor family could still get up to $420 per child. This proposal has a lot of support in the House and Senate Democratic caucuses. Um, the governor right now has not put any weight behind that. All of his focus has been on a broad-based income tax cut. So I think that's where the sparring is going to be. And it's kind of hard to water them down. Um, I doubt there's going to be a lot of support to do sort of both. Um, but, you know, maybe do one, you know, one half of what you proposed. Yeah, Robert is asking a question here. And again, if you have questions for Keith Faniff on, on the state budget, you can put them in the Q&A and we'll get to as many of them as, as we can. Robert's asking if, if this child tax credit is expected to pass. And, and if so, is this something that's a permanent credit? Is it is it set up to be something that's permanent or set up to be something that is revisited by the legislature constantly or at the whim of, uh, you know, a, a new administration coming in? Now, that's a good question. I should have mentioned we did have a one-time child tax rebate uh, that came out last year. It was $250 a child, up to $750 per household. Um, it was absolutely labeled by the Republicans as a political stunt um, by the governor and the Democrats and the legislature. Uh, what we're talking about here would be ongoing. I mean, nothing is quote-unquote permanent in state government because all it takes to change a law is another law. But what people are talking about would be an ongoing credit that would be part of the income tax system. So what about business taxes? What does uh, Governor Lamont want to do to uh, help businesses, to help corporations in the state? And is any of that at odds with any of the things we just talked about in terms of the way he wants to, he wants to help individuals and low-income families? This one's a little on the wonky side, but I'll, I'll try to get us through this. There's something called the pass-through entity tax. Think small and mid-sized businesses that don't pay the corporation tax, but might still be particularly profitable. Uh, before 2018, the way these businesses paid their taxes is the owners actually reported their earnings through their income tax, their quarterly income tax filings. Um, because of changes President Trump and the 2018 Congress made to the um, to the state and local tax deductions in the federal income tax, we sort of carved that part of the state income tax out. We call it the pass-through entity tax. I won't get into all the details, but it helps by filing it this way. It helps Connecticut businesses also on their federal income taxes. Long story short, the governor wants to cut that tax, give these uh, businesses about $60 million a year in relief. Um, this could be a problem simply because um, if we're talking about where folks fall on the poor, middle class, upper middle class, this tends a little bit more toward the higher end. And the, the pass-through entity tax has been very robust. So some folks might say, that's great, but if we're only going to have so much relief out there, we really want to focus it more on the poor and on the, the, the low to moderate middle income households. But before we move on from from this, Keith, I mean, uh, obviously things are so much different in a in a budget year in which we're sitting on this big surplus, and the governor is able to make some choices like this, including actually lowering tax rates for the for the first time in a very long time. Uh, what happens to the conversation that we've been having for so many years, in which progressive members of the legislature? Uh, Certainly, a, a large number of Connecticut residents say, look, we understand 
that we're in better financial times, but we still have an awful lot of needs in terms of social services. We still are underfunding education in a way that that we would like to. There's headroom to increase taxes on the wealthiest individuals. Is that a conversation that's just not happening this time around as it has for so many years in the past? The conversation will go on, but I think the chances of that bearing fruit this year are slim to bupkis and slim may have left the room. I mean, Governor Lamont has pretty much drawn a line in the sand that he does not support large scale wealth redistribution through the state tax system. The governor has said that should more happen at the federal level. That doesn't mean that you you won't see anything. Again, he's proposed increasing the state earned income tax credit, but uh, consistently throughout his first term, proposals uh, like a surcharge on wealthy households' capital gains, uh, proposals like what some folks call the mansion tax, a statewide property tax on household uh, homes, excuse me, with a high value, Those have been non-starters for the Lamont administration, and I can't see them going anywhere. But just so folks understand, the rationale behind it is, uh, I'm not an economist, but let's just say the economy really does tank hard in two or three years. If we were to provide, uh, say, more relief than some think we can afford for the poor and the middle class, the first thing that would happen in two or three years from now under that scenario is that relief would get pulled back and you get that yo-yo effect. We've done that before. We did it a lot. Uh, through the cheap way we have cut the income tax in the past, we would expand what was called the pro- what is called the property tax credit. It's just some money for middle-income households to help in your income tax refund to help offset what you pay in property taxes. That's gone up and down since the mid-90s like a yo-yo. It's been as high as $500, as low as $100. We're always changing who's eligible. So the idea is if we want to have really substantial relief this year and keep it ongoing, even if the economy slips, folks say the best way to do that is with some wealth redistribution at the upper end. The short answer, though, John, is the governor has yet to budge on that. Um, Democratic leadership in the legislature has not wanted to push it because they, they figure the governor can just align with the Republicans. I just don't see it happening this year. So let's talk about, you know, uh, some of the the spending in the plan, what the governor wants to do in terms of uh, funding uh, social services, human services. We talked about the very different environment that we're in, both fiscally and economically than we were a couple of years ago. We're also coming out of this pandemic that brought with it so much aid, uh, so many aid dollars. This is a different world now. What is the governor hoping to invest in when it comes to human services? Well, I think the biggest human services area the governor put more money in was for childcare. What I think is telling is that even with the additional funds he put in, um, I think we're talking about something like an additional 1,300 slots for infants and toddlers, um, money for wage support for childcare workers, both for licensed and unlicensed the immediate reaction from his fellow Democrats uh, quickly was, you know, thanks, a respectful thanks, but it didn't go far enough. And then when you factor in that he did not propose any increase for the private nonprofit social services, who, even though they've gotten increases in the last two years, are trying to catch up on a huge scale. We have people who want to see much more progress made in um, waiting lists 
for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, for residential services, for programs, for people with autism. Um, there wasn't money there. And it seems like a lot of what folks said were, um, you know, the, the governor kind of dipped a toe in the water. Um, the, I, I should point out, and we'll probably talk more about the spending cap in a little bit, the governor's budget, it's a biennial budget. So we got proposals for the fiscal year beginning this July and the one beginning July of 2024. His proposal for the second year falls an enormous $400 million below the spending cap. I haven't seen something like that since 2012. Um, and the word we're kind of getting from the administration is that, well, the legislature will probably fill that in with more spending, but it's hard to see because you can't tell how much more is the governor willing to support. Is that a placeholder for some of these unmet human service needs? Um, or is the governor really trying to get them to go leaner and start getting used to life without federal uh, pandemic relief? Yeah, uh, well, we have a couple of questions coming in about this. Kathy asks, can you talk about the failure to adequately fund the nonprofits, which spent a decade prior to COVID and ARPA funding being defunded? And, and this is a this is an important piece, Keith, that I, I, I think you you've mentioned already. When we talk about the nonprofit sector, Funding goes up, but it doesn't go up anywhere near enough to to cover the, the the gap in costs. Basically, these folks haven't been getting more money over a course of time, and in this, in, to many people, feels unsustainable for such an important part of the network that takes care of people. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it, John. Because if you're talking about the private nonprofit social services, you almost have to think about it as an enormous unofficial state agency. The overwhelming bulk of state-sponsored social services are delivered by the private sector. These aren't charities, Good Samaritans just looking for assistance. These are programs that the state could run with state employees, but it uses the private sector because it can do it much less costly. That's, that's the main reason. Uh, to give you some idea, we spend probably about a billion three, a billion four a year on this. And the estimate two years ago was that because rates basically had stagnated since the mid 2000s, um, they were probably, the industry as a whole was losing about 460 million a year to inflation. Over the last two years, the state upped its annual contributions by about 330 million. But with the inflation we saw last year, a lot of that money had to go into raises. Basically, that consumed it all. Now the estimate is they're about 480 million behind. In other words, we started so long, it is so hard. It's similar to what happens with our pensions where we don't save properly for 70 years. And we say, wow, we just put some extra money in. Great, we still have to put in even more. It's sort of like that, you know, we have an opportunity with this money if we want to make some really aggressive investments. But it's kind of hard to do it if you're just counting on the good times continuing to roll on if you want to raise taxes a little bit on households and corporations that can pay then you don't have to worry that I'm going to increase money for nonprofits and then two years later if the economy tanks yank it all back it's interesting Keith you know you you in covering the the budgets for so many years you're you're dealing both with the politics of this and also hard numbers and often what's interesting talking to you about this is is that the numbers that are proposed, really help to tell an awful lot of the story. That, that's the show me in a budget. But there's also some interesting rhetoric that came uh, with this budget and with the start of 
this legislative session with Governor Lamont talking about um, ladders, not lifelines. Sometimes rhetoric doesn't really mean all that much. In this case, it sort of feels like the rhetoric is is lining up a little bit with the numbers. I think it's fair to say it's lining up a little bit with the numbers. It's, I think it is difficult. I go back to what I said at the beginning. We have such extreme inequality in Connecticut. And it's, I think sometimes it's, if you don't look at the numbers, and I would be accused of being biased and looking at them too much, you just don't appreciate how much. I'll just pick again two two communities that are, what, 10 minutes apart on I-95, Bridgeport and Westport. Westport's grand list per capita, meaning the land that, that, that the land and buildings, the other property that they have, the value of that taxable property in Westport on a per person basis is 10 times the size of what Bridgeport has per person. So they can access 10 times the wealth. Uh, Bridgeport probably pays for its school, two thirds, I would think of its school budget, maybe more with state funding. Um, Westport's town budget, I believe less than 1% of its revenue comes from state aid because of the tremendous wealth. I'm not trying to vilify one community or another, simply pointing out the extremes are that great. So at some point, you, you kind of have to go beyond the rhetoric and take a look at the numbers. And I don't, I don't know if the governor's own party feels that he has adequately addressed the extremes, especially given the resources Connecticut as a state has demonstrated and state government has demonstrated it, it has over the last five years. Uh, among those institutions that the governor is asking to to make do with a little bit less is higher education. We saw a rally at the state capitol, UConn students and others uh, saying that they're upset that there are some substantial cuts to funding for UConn and the other universities at the state level in this budget. Put this into a little bit of context for us, Keith, because again, this is a cut from a height of funding for public universities over the course of the last couple of years, it's still a step up from what was being funded pre-COVID. Explain a little bit about where we are and what these cuts might mean. Yeah, this is one that's screaming for perspective. Um, The governor's proposals in sheer dollars, whether you adjust for inflation or not, but just one year over last year over, over this coming fiscal year, are a reduction both for the University of Connecticut and for the system that oversees the regional universities and the community colleges. The administration will correctly point out that if you look at what I would call the base operating grant or the base block grant, the funding grows. What's happening is from the state government's perspective, they are giving UConn, they are giving Um, the state universities and the community colleges, less emergency, we'll call it ARPA money, uh, federal pandemic relief, uh, American Rescue Plan Act money. The the higher ed units don't look at it that way for two reasons. One, when they get money each year, they're not saying, well, we consider this ongoing money and we consider this one-time money. And don't get me wrong, the, the governor is saying, well, you should have. You should have inferred and that meant Economize, And they were saying, no, you need to take a look at how the pandemic has transformed higher ed 
if not permanently, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and maybe permanently. Right. Yeah. Economically, the, the, the pandemic is not over, particularly for um, the regional uh, state universities and the community colleges. I think the, there is going to be a, a stronger push put on UConn to show where they can and cannot economize. I, I know the administration is looking for them uh, to tap their reserves. Um, but I think uh, right now, the folks in the legislature really want to know how has the coronavirus changed things ongoing? How many fewer students no longer live on campus at Eastern? Maybe they are not even worried about COVID anymore, but when they were really scared, they lived at home. Then they found out, wow, I can commute and go cheaper. And now they're just, there, is there a new trend there? Um, that is going to absolutely affect the revenue streams for those units. And, and so what that could mean is we may see uh, tuition hikes at UConn, we may see layoffs at state universities. Uh, UConn's, you know, even talked about the, you know, the nuclear option. When you start talking about basketball and the XL Center and how people are going to see their Huskies, now everyone stands up and notices. I mean, is is there something real here in terms of a, a standoff or is this, as I think you're laying out, just maybe a, a little bit of a difference of opinion in how much universities needed to plan for a future in which there wasn't so much money coming from the federal government? Um, it, there's definitely a standoff. I mean, I, the Speaker of the House, Matt Ritter, was very clear that games were going to continue at the Excel Center. Um, so I don't know if basketball fans have to be worried, but that aside, um, I think folks are concerned. I mean, just not just UConn, but uh, I'll just use them as an example. Uh, the Board of Trustees has a tuition plan that they put in place, usually for multiple years. And in this case, they had put a five-year plan in place that I think is supposed to run from uh, 2019 through 2024. The goal being, you want families to plan. You want them to know what the tuition is going to be. It's not that they can't amend that plan midstream, but that's something you really don't want to do. And you certainly don't want to amend it big time. It's one thing if you've got to tweak the tuition and bump it up a little or the fees a little bit. If you've got to add on a lot, now all of a sudden, folks who worked out all the money and, and, and found a way to make the budget work are, are pulling their hair out. And there's definitely a fear about that. Um, I think the legislature is going to really press the higher ed units to show if they can't economize what type of a toll it's going to take on faculty. And, and, and I do also think, though, they're going to look at what the faculty are making. Yeah, one question that came in from from John here in our in our audience is, and this speaks to something that's that's not frankly so, and I hate to put it this way, but like mundane as what happens year to year. But he's asking, why can't a healthy budget be used to boost state support for UConn to enable the wealthiest state to have the best flagship university in the country? This this is a a, a different sort of question, right? Sure. A lot of people who, whether it's UConn or anything else in the in in the state, Keith, people say we have we have money potentially available right now. Could we be investing right now to boost up a UConn as opposed to whittling away? Sure, and it's a fair question. Um, it is unfortunately though a question in a vacuum, and here's here's what it comes down to. We have, and I go back to the beginning of the talk, when I tried my best to make $12 billion seem small. Even if the budget booms for the next three, five, seven years, we will be dealing with our pension problems. They still 
our payments on our pension debt, our retiree health care, and our bonded debt, they still eat up 30% of the budget. That's too much. That's way too much. That's more than it does in most other states. And it's going to continue to be a problem well into the 2030s and realistically probably into the 2040s. And that goes to the heart of this last question. Could we invest in Yukon? Absolutely. Could we invest more tax relief for the poor, the middle class? Absolutely. When you start doing all these things and attacking the pensions and you don't want to raise taxes on the wealthy, now all of a sudden you got priorities. And quite frankly, in defense of Governor Lamont, even if you did raise taxes on the wealthy, it's not a, it's not a bottomless well. And there's still only so much you can do. People are learning truly how much pain we did as a state. And I'm sorry, because John's heard me say this so many times, but after 70 years of not saving, of leaving tens of billions of dollars of potential pension investment earnings on the table, you don't make the uh, savings payments, you don't get to invest the money, you don't make the earnings. We punted on all that money for 70 years. There's no, there's no way out of that without hard choices. It's it's no different than going to the dentist and asking for a fun root canal. It just doesn't exist. <laughs> I went to the dentist this morning, as a matter of fact. No root canal, just a simple oh. cleaning. But it's was it fun? It's never all that much fun. I got to tell you, it's oh. it's not it's not my favorite thing. Um, you know, there's a lot more that I know that you want to get to. There's a lot of questions coming in on various subjects, though. I, I want to okay. ask you and pepper you with, you know, Patricia sure. asks a really good one. Uh, she says the governor uh, appears to recognize our democracy is stronger when everyone participates. That is when they vote. Um, why did Governor Lamont not provide funds to support voting implementation of early voting, which, of course, is is happening in the state, uh, etc., et replacing malfunctioning voting machines? Is there anything in this budget at all, Keith, that points to the fact that Connecticut is going to be voting uh, differently the next time around? And we got to find, I don't know how much money, we got to find some money to actually support the, this new way of voting over the course of 10 or 12 days or however long we'll have. Uh, I have to be honest, Patricia, and thanks for the question. I have not put it to the administration, but I'm still going to offer a theory. Um, I will just point out that um, in the big scheme of a 24, $25 billion a year budget, um, the money that you'd be talking about is probably a fraction of 1%. And a lot of times on the small items, what the administration administrations will do is simply leave those. It keeps the bottom line lower, but they're not going to necessarily oppose them. They're going to let the legislature put the money in and then say, oh, these guys wanted the extra spending. So even though this one did not appear in the governor's budget, I would not assume it's it's out of play. Uh, Dimitri asks, are there any line items in the budget regarding energy expense relief for low-income and working-class families? No, and there's not, though, in fairness, that, that's not the type of thing usually you can budget too much for. A lot of that's usually done through the utility regs and, and the rates. Um, the, there will probably be a battle, though, um, in the coming weeks if... February starts to turn bitter cold. I'm not saying it will, so don't get on my case about the budget, about the weather. But <laughs> if that happens, um, a lot of families have exhausted their um, their LIHEAP benefits, their uh, winter energy assistance benefits. And I think you could see a last minute push to add some money there. You know, it's funny, Keith, we, we, we've talked about a couple ways in which the, the state has, I don't know, kind of lucked out. 
done better than the 70 years of, of punting on some of these, these fiscal issues, but we've also lucked out in terms of, of tax receipts and, and other things coming in. Could you imagine with the fuel prices that we have this winter, if we'd actually had a bad winter, if we'd had the type of winter that, that makes people not just uncomfortable, but actually freeze in their homes. I mean, we kind of lucked out this time around, didn't we? Enormously. And we still don't know, even with this ridiculously mild winter, we won't unfortunately till the spring, how many families there were of collateral damage. The fact of the matter is we funded the energy assistance program, the LIHEAP program significantly less, not than just what we did last year, which was an outlier year because there was a ton of pandemic relief money in the program. But even two years ago, when the fuel oil prices were about 60% less than what they are this year. So I still think even with, what are we heading towards? Almost 60 degrees this evening. Mm -hmm. um, there are families that probably are tapped out of benefits and you know, just hoping things don't get really cold. We have a couple of questions from people about, about the baby bonds uh, proposals. And we've talked about other ways in which this budget would be aimed at helping families or low-income uh, families. Explain, first of all, if you would, Keith, what, what exactly the baby bonds program is and if, in, if there's support for this. I'll try to give the short version because this has a long history, uh, but it was a proposal from the former treasurer, Sean Wooden, and it has, in fairness, it has a lot of supporters. I don't want to say that it all came from the treasurer's office, but he, he took the lead in, in bringing this before the legislature a few years ago. Um, it would involve the state borrowing about $50 million a year, putting aside grants for children from low-income households. Um, they would have that money when they get older. They could use it to support their education, start a business. Um, the problem with baby bonds is that it, again, sort of runs against, and when I say problem, I, guess I should have said the conflict, the, the, the issue comes into play. It runs against Governor Lamont's general philosophy of wealth redistribution at the state level. The legislature approved the borrowing. Keep in mind that when it comes to borrowing money, that's just one step in the process. Um, the governor, however, did not want to do that. You know, the borrowing was part of a large bond package, so he wasn't going to shoot, we, shoot that down. We borrow a lot of money for dozens of capital projects every year. So while he signed the, the bond package into law, he's never put the baby bonds on what they call, would call the state bond commission agenda. That's the second step. So it's uh, they're they're sort of stuck in in limbo. His new budget doesn't show any indication that they're planning to change that. He the 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 initial approval is there, so he reflected it in his budget. But the administration's already said, don't look for that on any bond commission agenda anytime soon, unless legislative leaders are ready to make a really harsh point on that and mm -hmm. throw down, hold hostage something else the governor wants baby bonds will stay in limbo. I'm glad though you brought up uh, the bond commission. Uh, we've got questions from Scott and certainly I've got a few questions too. Um, Scott asks, how much has Governor Lamont adhered to his debt diet? You will recall that the debt diet that, that Governor Lamont wanted the state right. to go on. So how, how, are we, how are we faring? 
Uh, the debt diet has been one of the more filling diets um, that, that we've had. It turns out you can eat a lot of things you didn't think you could. You might gain weight, but it turns out you can eat a lot more. Um, I, I don't want to make it sound like spending is going crazy, but I want to just point something out. One of the guardrails that we talk about um, is a cap on bond issuances, how much bonding we can actually issue on Wall Street. You know, again, we have this multi-stage process where the legislature, think of it as a, a restaurant menu. The legislature approves a series of projects. They're putting items on the menu. The bond commission doesn't have to take anything off the menu, but it can order the items that it wants. Once the bond commission's approved it, then the treasurer can actually go to Wall Street and issue bonds, not just on a project by project basis, but borrow a lot of money to make these things happen. And that's why I said the, the baby bonds never got any, never got any farther than that. Um, just, just, I'm sorry, John, I got so confused with my, with my menu uh, analogy here. I forgot the, the underlying question on this. Well, I, I think really oh, the, the, under, the underlying question is, is how, I'm sorry, how, how are we doing it at, at borrowing? I mean, there's, there's still plenty of borrowing in this budget. There's, there's borrowing to pay off borrowing. Um, yep. No, or, I had or, a senior yeah. moment there, but I'm back with us. Um, <laughs> we had a cap at about $1.9 billion a year. Um, the governor has just agreed to raise that cap to $2.4 billion, billion, excuse me, and we'll be adjusting it for inflation going forward. And as you just pointed out, John, um, we've had a controversial practice for a while of using the proceeds from bond premiums. It's complicated, but it's uh, there's nothing wrong with bond premiums. There are additional money we borrow to help market our bonds. It's fine if we borrow more than we need to, as long as we turn around and take that, that extra money we borrowed and sort of use it right away to pay back the money we just borrowed. It sounds like a silly back and forth thing. We don't do that. It's like we borrow extra money that we didn't need and put it in our savings account. It's like using your credit card to pay off another credit card. And we do anywhere from 90 to $125 million a year of borrowing to pay off borrowing. That was supposed to stop when Governor Lamont took office. The 2017 legislature had passed a law that said in 2019, this practice was gonna end. Governor Lamont and the legislature pushed that issue off to the second term and his budget wants to continue the practice. So there are some people who are also saying, you can't have that much of a debt diet when you're using one credit card to pay off another. Uh, we've got a few questions here coming from uh, from Michelle, from Kevin. Michelle asks, could you speak to what the budget does for affordable housing? Um, there are additional investments, uh, additional bonding for affordable housing. I think you're going to see a much bigger debate on are we going to get to a point where we use um, the carrot or the stick to try to um, determine where that affordable housing is gonna go. In other words, are we gonna just offer incentives to wealthier communities to build more housing? Or are we going to try to mandate, um, set higher requirements as, as one legislator said, um, some communities, the carrot doesn't work. They're sitting on a mountain of carrots, offering them one more isn't gonna get them to offer anything. I think that's where really the debate's gonna be this session. And I, Kevin's question is slightly different, though. So there's the question of, will we build more affordable housing? What carrots and sticks do we use to get towns uh, involved in this? But Kevin also asked, is there anything in the budget to help people who are in distress for housing expenses now? 
this budget does not add, I mean, keep in mind, we do have right now, um, I, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, there is additional funding and I'm gonna have to check for you, Kevin. I wrote it, it's just one of too many things. Um, but there is additional funding in the governor's budget for the first time home buyers program. Um, I would also suggest watching a Republican proposal that could have some support from Democrats. Some folks talked about a new income tax credit for renters. Now that's not gonna necessarily lead to more housing construction, but if you're talking about people getting more housing or affordable housing, um, that could go a long way toward um, helping some folks be able to afford to live in a better community. We just have a couple minutes left. We've got through a lot of questions that people have. We'll try to get to a few more. This is the part of the program, Keith, where, you know, it'd be very easy for people to just say, oh, I don't, I don't want to hear about fiscal guardrails and spending caps. I don't want to, under, I don't want to understand anything more about this. So I know that you're going to make this very exciting for folks, but, but when we talk about, and you mentioned this before, when you talk about the spending cap, the reality of that, um, revenue caps, all of what we call the, the guardrails, what exactly do we need to know about that to understand how this budget exactly works and how this budget sure. comes together? We will, we will do our best to make this as exciting and compelling as we can. We've had a spending cap since we've had an income tax. And in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is keep most state spending in line with either the growth in personal income, growth in household income, in other words, or inflation. Whichever grows faster, the state takes that factor and says that's how much the budget can grow. There are certainly ways around that. Here's what happened, though. In 2017, a lot of folks felt that the spending cap had become something of a joke. We had this bipartisan budget that required uh, Republicans to vote with the Democrats if they wanted to get anything done. And the Republicans said, we want a much better spending cap in terms of more stringent one of the exceptions we used to have, for example, was aid to poor cities and towns, which is probably two thirds of our municipal aid, a couple billion dollars. That wasn't subject to the cap. That could grow at its own rate. Not anymore. That's part of the cap. The other thing is there was a love-hate relationship between the cap and the payments that we owe to our pension funds. And believe me, when times are bad, those payments grow faster than anything else. They eat up more of the budget and they squeeze everything else out. Part of that 2017 deal said the state employee pension payments come under the cap in 2023. They're there. The teacher's pensions in 2027. Here's where I'm going with this. The cap is fitting kind of loosely right now because of inflation. When you get 8 9% inflation, you get lots of cap room. Well, this is going to be the nastiest fitting girdle we've ever seen because when inflation starts coming down and those additional things start going into the budget, like and under the cap rather, like the teacher's pension, all of a sudden things are going to start getting squeezed again. You might not notice it until about 2027, but it could be ugly. And here's the last point. You might say, well, what's the big deal? The spending cap, let's just pass a law to change the spending cap. Well, we've had some question, even though there's a constitutional amendment that says there shall be a spending cap, it's basically been gutted. It doesn't have any force because the legislature never uh, implemented it. The 2017 cap is just in statute, but folks still didn't want other legislatures tampering with it. So they came up with something you might hear called bond lock. And that is when we go to Wall Street and we borrow money, 
we actually go enter into a contract with our bond investors. And in the bond covenant language, we said, we won't tamper with our spending cap, with our borrowing cap, with this program I'll mention in a minute called the volatility adjustment until 2023. And that has the force of a contract. So it would be very hard for the legislature to try to change that. We just renewed that for another five years. So we've sort of bond locked future legislatures into staying with these current guardrails. I wanna just very quickly mention the volatility adjustment. It's a program that prevents us from spending all of the income tax receipts that come in tied to capital gains and dividends. We have a, a threshold amount of roughly about 3.2 billion that we can spend. Anything that comes in after that has to go into the rainy day fund. If the rainy day funds fill, it goes into the pensions. It's it's very hard to tamper with that. That well, it, that was a lot it, at once. It was, it was, but it was surprisingly interesting. And I, <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. And I, and I followed it. But one of the things that you that you mentioned in there, of, of course, is um, the 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 impact all this has had on municipal aid. Maybe talk for a minute, Keith, if you would, before we run low on time. What does the budget propose in terms of aid to cities and towns, aid to education, which happens in cities and towns? The 2017 legislature passed a 10-year plan to ramp up the education cost-sharing program. It's our main grant to cities and towns. The governor's budget does stay on that. So there's an extra $46 million in the first year, 91 in the second. Again, we're talking about a program that distributes about $2 billion, a little more than $2 billion. Um, but this was one of the areas where a lot of legislators campaigned and said, we can do better with these surpluses. We don't want to keep building toward 2027. We can basically push ECS up to our goals. Now we have enough money. So I expect there'll be a fight there. On the non-education side, the governor kept all the aid flat, but he proposed putting several different grants all into one big block grant. That has uh, Connecticut Conference of Municipalities, um, Council of Small Towns, municipal leaders nervous. Usually whenever you see everything merged into one grant, it's setting it up in future years to start cutting it. Mm-mm. That's the short version. Yeah. A last thing for you, Keith, is as we run out of time, I asked you at the front if there's anything after all these budgets that kind of surprised you here. Do you sense that, although there are clearly going to be some battles over the budget over the course of the next couple of months, and even though there's going to be some disputes, even within Governor Lamont's own party, about the role that he should play in addressing some of these inequities that we talked about at the start, do you get a sense that because of the current state of Connecticut's fiscal situation, the fact that we're in better stead than we have been over years, right. that there isn't quite <clears throat> as much tension at the state capitol, that there's not the type of of kind of life or death battles that we've seen in the past? Or or as an outsider here, am I just, am I looking at this wrong? No, I think you're looking at it right, but I would say to that, give it time because the tension will show up. You're, you're absolutely right that right now everything's kind of nice, but you're already seeing the seeds of it. Just quickly, people are starting to say, why can't, like the question we got, why can't we do more for UConn? Why can't we do more here? Why can't we do more here? And folks are only focused on geez, we've had all this money over the last three years, over the last five years. Before that, we had seven or eight years of really lean budgets. Before that, they were robust for five. Then they were lean. You notice a pattern. We're due to swing again. What's constant is we owe a ton of money 
and it will make the great times less great and it will make the bad times more painful. And folks are kind of forgetting that and they're being hit in the face with that again. How about I, I end on that note? I, I can always count on you to end on a very happy note like that. The, the, the bad times, they're coming back, baby. The hits just keep on coming. <laughs> Keith Spaniff uh, covers the budget for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks as always, Keith. And thanks for answering all these great questions from our audience. Thanks. Tonight's event was made possible in part through the support of CBIA. Learn more about CBIA's 2023 Transform Connecticut Policy Solutions at CBIA.com. But also go to ConnecticutMirror.org right now, even if you would. You can read all of Keith's great reporting, along with Mark's great reporting, Ginny's great reporting. All of the reporters, a very robust viewpoints section, uh, our columnist, Mercy Quay. There's a lot of stuff there. But you also get a chance to click that big donate button in the upper right corner. And yeah, I know this is going to sound like a public radio fundraiser, but here's the deal. People like Keith do this work because of support from people like you. This is a very different model than the old newspaper model where they had to sell subscriptions and they had to sell advertisements. That model's kind of broken, you might have noticed. The Mirror and other organizations like The Mirror survive because people like you care enough to give something to support it. So I encourage you to donate. And it doesn't have to be a lot. If you want to give $500, that pays for a lot of reporting. But if you want to give $5, that shows your support as well. So go online right now to ctmirror.org, click the big red donate button, make your support felt today. It really does help. <laughs>